we live in the house that we built on the foundation of human suffering and 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 theft right like theft of land and theft of life and labor and so unfortunately like we all have to deal with the consequences of this and so we are willing to build a new house Hey there, damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where we sit down and chat with amazing humans who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. My hope is that you will listen, learn, and begin giving a damn in your world today, wherever you may be. My guest today is a truly special human. Her name is Tori Williams Douglas. Tori is from Portland, Oregon, and she is an anti-racist educator, the founder of White Homework, a writer, a content creator, and so much more. In our conversation, we talk about growing up in a progressive but not so progressive city, living on stolen land, systemic racism, this crazy pandemic we're in, police brutality, spirituality, or the lack thereof, what she would do right now if she were president, and so much more. Fair warning, this conversation is raw and unfiltered. I mean, you already know that's how I roll, but this one is extra spicy. Can't say I didn't warn you. Now, we have just gone from one podcast episode to two podcast episodes per week, so I wanted to let you know about the podcast we just released with Robert Frank on Tuesday. If you're interested in doing your part to fix our climate crisis, this episode is for you. And in case you're wondering, every one of y'all should give a damn about the environment, so that episode is for all of y'all. Robert just retired from teaching at Cornell for 48 years. Let me repeat, Robert has been teaching at Cornell for longer than most of y'all have been alive. Robert is super smart, and you're going to want to learn from him. He has a brand new book out called Under the Influence. Go get it. It's fantastic. And check out that podcast conversation. And look forward to two episodes per week for, well, as long as I can handle it. Okay, back to this week's conversation. Ready to go? As always, my email is hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'd love to hear from you. And here's my conversation with Tori Williams-Douglas. Let's go. Tori Williams-Douglas, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Thank you for doing it on such a short notice. I just hit you up the other day and you were like, hell yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, so thank you for making time. And you're going on a little bit of a vacation tomorrow. So thanks for fitting us in right before uh, you go rest a little bit. Yeah, that's important. So yes, yes, it is. So we're going, we're kind of going through a little bit of a transition here on let's give a damn. So it's been a yearly or sorry, it's been a yearly, it's been a weekly podcast for, uh, about three years. We have 150 episodes out and, but we're going to two episodes a week because I just find that like things are really wild right now and I can't get uh, enough of the right conversations in. And so I don't have any shortage of people to talk to. It's really wonderful. But during this season of elite, you know, you and I both live in the United States of America for better or for worse. And so in America right now, there are some, you know, on top of the global pandemic, we've got, um, you know, domestic terrorism to deal with that we'll get into more here in a little bit. There's just so much going on. And so I was like, man, there's so much to talk about, so much to work through. And during this season, I wanted to really uh, give way more. I've always been, uh, it's always been important for me to give, uh, a platform to, uh, people of color. And, but during this season, it's like, we we've got to do more and more of that. And so, um, again, 
all that to say, thank you for making the time for us. I'm really excited to, uh, to be honest, I didn't really follow your work until about two or three months ago. Hmm. Uh, I, not that I didn't want to, I just didn't, I was, I didn't, wasn't aware of yeah, all the work that you totally. were doing. And with so much of, so much of what you're doing in this white homework that we're going to talk about, it's really exciting. I think the, the anti-racist, you know, uh, education work that you're doing. So before we jump into all that, and actually before I was going to start out with a really like earnest, like, how are you like lay it on us? And I said, wait a second, that is going to, that's going to lead us into the rest of the podcast. So before we get there, before I even ask you how the hell you are, give us some context for who you are. Uh, like what are the highlights of your life? Who are the people who, and what are the people, places, and things that kind of shaped you and made you into who you are today? Give us that first and then we'll jump in. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I was born and raised. Um, I've lived in the Pacific Northwest my entire life, essentially like here in Seattle. So um, I absolutely love it. <laughs> love it here. Like I'm so grateful that I was lucky enough to be born in this part of the world. Um, and also, you know, respect to the Chinook people whose stolen land I currently live on. Um, and so, yeah, I like grew up here. I grew up evangelical, like the evangelicals are too liberal for my parents sort of situation. And, um, and, uh, yeah. So like went to Bible college and then, (laughs) and then was like, I don't really know what I want to do with my life. And, um, sort of fell into this work um as a way to kind of combine um like just kind of the anti-racist work and education that i was doing online and then i had been working in a neuroscience lab um which was really incredible because i got to work with all of these like amazing neuroscientists of color yeah it's wild and um a lot of them were studying things like racial bias and um the ways that people respond, like kind of those split second decisions that we make when we're like coming in contact with another person that we've never seen before. Um, and things like the way that trauma affects, you know, genetics. And so I was able to be exposed to a ton of really incredible, um, brand new, right. Information and data. And, um, was kind of able to use a lot of that to put together what eventually became white homework, right? So I love to be able to take like the social science, like the data from social science and American history and the neuroscience piece and kind of put those together because I think you need all of that in order to make a really um, compelling argument at this point um, against racism, which it's 2020. Why the fuck do I need to make a compelling argument against racism? Right. Um, but yeah, in order to prove to people that systemic racism is real, I feel like you kind of need to draw on all three of these things. And I just happen to, I don't know, just the way that my brain works, I memorize like facts and statistics and data. And it's just really easy for me to like recall that. And so, um, yeah, I basically, I think because partially because of my skill set, partially because of luck, partially because people, you know, I do have... Uh, a modicum of privilege and people think that I'm really accessible, which is great. You know, I don't have a problem with that at all. And so it just kind of happened that I became an anti-racist educator. It wasn't like 
my intention. It wasn't something that I set out to do necessarily. That's, I mean, that's a beautiful thing, I think, because it seems if if you weren't pushing for it, and not that if you were pushing for it, it would be bad, but you weren't pushing for it, you weren't really looking for that, and that kind of, I mean, it's kind of your, not to go back to your evangelical Christian, you know, uh, language, but it's, you, you like, it's a calling, like, you kind of, you found this thing that you need to be doing, and that people believe you need to be doing. That's a really beautiful thing to see kind of uh, happen. How did you end up at a neuroscience, uh, kind of in neuroscience work at a neuroscience lab? Like, how did that happen? I mean, probably if everybody could raise their hands listening to the show, probably a, maybe one or two hands would pop up and say, yeah, I've worked in or around or with neuroscience at all. So how did that happen? Um, so essentially, I was like, it was a situation of sort of failing up. <laughs> I, I had a friend um, from back in my evangelical days who um, I hadn't really kept in touch with. And she like one day she just posted on Facebook. She was like, hey, so we need someone to do like so our administrative and like billing stuff for for our lab. And I didn't know anything about it except that she raved about this lab for, you know, seven, eight years. And so I was like, sure, I'll, I'll apply. That sounds really cool. And come to find out it's like the PI is a black man and like super diverse team because he was intentional about that, right? That doesn't happen on accident in Portland. Um, yeah. He was very yes. intentional about building a diverse lab. And so, um, yeah, I was able to kind of work in that, in that space. And um, the primary focus of the lab actually um, is ADHD and autism. Um, so that was also super fascinating and, and really yeah, kind of important seriously. information given the way that our culture has sort of shaken out <laughs> in the last 10, 15 years because of social media and the way that disinformation and misinformation um, are able to sort of cultivate and spread. And um, yeah, so it was, it was not that it wasn't intentional either. <laughs> it just sort of happened. So we've got a couple connections in the Pacific Northwest. So I, we live in Nashville right now. It won't be for long, but we're here. It was kind of, I won't bore you with the story. It's kind of a stopover before heading further to the East Coast. But before that, so we're probably going to end up in New York City soon. But before that, we lived in Tacoma, Washington for four years. And uh, we we adore all things Pacific Northwest. If Honestly, if it wasn't for some of my career stuff, but mostly our families who live more here on the East Coast, and we have three little kids, and it just, it was so hard to travel back and forth, and it just got, I mean, it got really, really hard. They're growing up now, so it's a little different, but three little kids, infants and toddler age, just, you know, flying six, seven, eight times a year back and forth. It was a pain in the ass, and so we decided to move this way, but we, it's kind of weird. We know we probably won't move back to the Pacific, Pacific Northwest, but it's hands down our favorite place we've ever lived. I mean, it is the weather. I mean, we love, I mean, we love gloomy. We love overcast. I mean, the temperature is so perfect in the Pacific Northwest. Like it is the right temperature. Spent a lot of time in, uh, in Portland as well. That was, we thought about moving there for a little bit, but you mentioned something in your last, when you were talking about this lab, you know, um, a lot of people think Portland is, because it's kind of seen from afar, you know, people, all they think of when they think of Portland is kind of the Portlandia, kind of Portland, very inclusive, very diverse, all that stuff. But in reality, Portland, well, Oregon as a whole, 
has an incredibly racist, you know, history. And Portland is, uh, to the best of my knowledge, from what I can observe from my many visits there, it's pretty segregated, um, you know, still to this day. Like, you look at the cool areas, and the cool areas of town are, it's like white young people doing white young people things. And there seems to be, um, you know, kind of segregation that has happened over the years where, like, you know, there's there's black communities and they've been pushed out of the city, uh, you know, through through uh, all sorts of things, gentrification. And, you know, even though redlining was banned a long, long time ago, it still happens today in every in every city. So, you know, redlining all these things that are that have kind of pushed them out. What what has been in the kind of work that you do? And you said, you know, growing up there, so mm -hmm. you've seen it. Mm -hmm. I've visited, mm -hmm. you know, dozens of times, but I don't live there. Mm -hmm. So you seeing it growing up and now into the work that you're doing, what's it like living in a place that kind of poses itself as this kind of diverse, inclusive, and there is diversity and inclusivity there, but there's still some real issues mm -hmm. uh, to work through there. What's been your experience living in, as you said, you love it. Like you can't imagine living anywhere else. So how does that, how do you wrestle with all of that? Um, yeah, I mean... It's it's tough. I definitely Portland's changed a lot since since I was a little kid. Um, like you said, there's no uh, we've experienced a ton of like I would say 100 percent like gentrification is complete in Portland. There is yeah. no more um, predominantly black neighborhood in Portland um, where there once was there, you know, and there are kind of like token efforts to to make things more. Um, welcoming right for people of color um especially like business owners and, and people who um like want to purchase a house but yeah it's i mean it's hard i i know you know i have friends who are older than me who grew up here right who grew up in the in the black neighborhood right like close in like north northeast portland and it's like really heartbreaking because they'll they'll go past like they'll they'll you know walk past the family house that they grew up in and you know there wasn't something that their parents could keep for uh reasons that were not um that they didn't have any control over right it was sure. political reasons and yep. so it's 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 really frustrating to like drive through neighborhoods um that neighborhoods that were raised right for no reason nothing was ever yep. built on that land neighborhoods yep. where um people of color can no longer afford to live just because you know our incomes are significantly less than our white neighbors and and it's mm -hmm. it's hard because it's like okay there's all these black lives matter signs in front of homes that black families used to live in that they have missed out on hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity because they were pushed out for policy reasons, right? They were pushed out because yep. the city chose um, during the course of redlining and after to divest from certain neighborhoods yep. um, to not do like regular city maintenance, right? And and they, you know, intentionally let these areas fall into disrepair. Um, plus, you know, black families, especially like being given really predatory um, lending. Yep. Uh, rates and and you know if if you could even get a mortgage right a lot of the time it was just like contract um, purchases so you were very likely to lose your house if you you know were even a few days late on a payment and um, yeah so all this is really systemic and it's just it's 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 tough to see right it's it's tough to see like 
you know, an $800,000 house with a Black Lives Matter sign in front of it that used to be owned by a Black family. Like, mm. that fucks you up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. And, um, you know, the, the, other, the other piece of this that I recently, that I just recently learned about doing my own quote-unquote white homework <laughs> is um, that the U.S. put together this um, program to move indigenous people off of reservations so that it could shut them down and take the land um, and into major cities. And so a huge tens of thousands of native people ended up moving to Portland, um, not of their own volition, right? It was like incentivized, but then they were just kind of left to languish here, um, which is another just completely horrific piece of Portland history. Um, because, you know, they're taken away from their ancestral homelands and and given like an apartment and like a stipend for a month or two to move here and then it's like okay go get a job it was like i'm being Insane. fucking discriminated against have you seen this town like where am i supposed to get a job yep. where i can like pay all of right. my bills um yep. so you know that led to a massive housing crisis for indigenous people in in the area and um, yeah, we don't, we don't have a real great track record. Like we look good, sure. right? I think to other white people, Portland looks like, like, oh yeah, you're like the liberal bubble, right? Like this is just, this is what we do. And, um, you know, I think we, you know, we, we tend to pat ourselves on the back for being really progressive. And, um, but to, to me, like true progress doesn't leave people of color behind right you know no, and and people no, no. people try to people try to say like oh well you know it's it's cultural or it's just like a societal thing or you don't try as hard to keep up or you know whatever whatever the argument is whatever the counter argument is but when you see that it's across the board when you see that but that black and indigenous people especially have to apply to three or four times as many jobs in order to get in order to get employment and then they're paid less even if they have the same qualifications, same work history, same employment experience. Um, like that's very, like that's intentional, right? Like that doesn't just happen. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, I do like, it's like Portland is a really beautiful city and it's, fantastic. Um, it's, it's tough. Like it's, it's definitely tough to live here. If you, if you know the history of everything that has been done, you know, especially to black and indigenous communities. But now we have a lot of Latinx people here because Oregon is primarily like an agricultural state. Um, yep. So there's, you know, there's lots of Latinx people here, a lot of, a lot of undocumented people here. And um, so obviously they're being targeted left and right. Um, currently like with with this current administration but frankly also with the last administration like yep. you know there hasn't really yep. been a great administration on on immigration ever, ever to my knowledge ever. right um so uh yeah it's it's i don't want to say it's a mixed bag but it's it's hard to live here as a person of color like if you actually know the history of the city um at the same time like the work that i do is to make life easier for people of color, right? Yep. And and yep. I don't mind like using the amount of privilege that I have to go and like wrangle the whites and be like, hey, you need to pay attention. You need to make sure that like you're actually paying your employees, 
right? You need to make sure that you're paying them equitably <laughs> and you need to be yeah. having conversations with your, your uncle who is sliding specific resumes into the recycle bin, right? Or you need to go talk to your like cousin who's a cop. Like you need to be having these conversations. Like you have a moral obligation to be having these conversations if you have privilege. So yeah. that's sort of, that's, it's my community inspires me to do the work that I'm doing because I see a lot of injustice here. Yeah. No, I think it's, I, I think it's wonderful that you and people like you are living in places like that. I, I, I have this constant struggle personally because I, I'm the son of a, in a, an undocumented immigrant and, um, you know, ended up moving back to Guatemala for 10 years growing up, mm. uh, lived there. And then I spent six years traveling the world, spent time in 30 plus countries. Mm. Really, I mean, I already had a big worldview growing up. Yeah. At the time, Guatemala was one of the most dangerous countries in the world. It was the end of the civil war. And it was, it was, it was a, a simultaneously an amazing place to grow up yeah. and a horrible place to grow up. I mean, yeah. I've seen horrific things happen right in front of me. I almost got kidnapped, like crazy stuff, right? So now I, I live, I've, I've lived back here for, I guess, half my life now, now that I'm 36. And one of the constant struggles is, do we get the hell out of here? Mm -hmm. And kind of leave this horrificness that's happening right now. Right. I mean, I mean, again, d d you know, if we're gonna like Donald Trump is not, he is a symptom of the problem, yep. but he is yep. just exposing mm -hmm. so much shit that's already so so. Okay, D Donald Trump's out and Biden's in 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 six months. God help us. Like it's all here <laughs> right? still. Right. It's all here. The 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 couple that came out of their home last night in St. Louis brandishing you know weapons. Uh, and, and the woman with the, you know, the, the hand, the finger on her trigger, that still stays yep. those people that are so yep. simultaneously yep. hateful and fearful. So I've, I've always had this hard, hard battle of like, do we go somewhere else or do we stay mm -hmm. and essentially fight the good fight? Right. right? And, and it's not, those are not right or wrong. Uh -huh. like, yeah. like taking your family overseas to, you know, go live in Lisbon, Portugal, or, you know, Berlin, Germany, or all these amazing places that are good for raising families. Yeah. I'm sure they've got their shit, but like, you know, they're better, they're better than here. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, or do you stay here, you know, because geography is so important, but you're going to find horrible people everywhere. Yep. Like, you know, our, our plan is to end up in New York city uh, for a ton of reasons, but you know, one is it's such a diverse, beautiful yeah. like place, yeah. but along with the diversity comes the NYPD yep. and a lot of racism. Yep. And you see all these immigrants and refugees being murdered mm -hmm. and hurt and like antagonized and brutalized. Yep. And so it's like, okay, we're going to this place that literally is the epitome of what we envisioned for America. And there you're going to find shitty people. So it's like, it's, I don't know. I don't know why I'm even saying that other than it's hard. It is a mixed bag to yeah. figure out where you want to plant down roots and where you want to stay mm -hmm. because you're going to find allies. You're going to find people that want to work with you and for you and alongside you. You're going to find people that want to follow the work that you're doing. And you're going to find people that just boggle your fucking mind mm -hmm. with how like anti-American they are, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like it's, it's just, it's a mixed bag. You're very right. Like staying in America anywhere, small town, big city and everything in between rule, uh, uh, cosmopolitan. Yep. It's a mixed bag yep. anyway, you slice it. So, uh, anyway, I'm glad you're in Portland. Um, let's, okay. Now is a good time to ask, how are you? I know we're not like besties. It's the first time we're meeting, but I'm asking like, how are you emotionally, physically, spiritually, the whole thing? Because 
there's a lot of feel, there's a lot of things going on and there's a lot that we're feeling and there's pressure and there's weight and we're going into the second wave all over the US of, you know, the coronavirus and yes, vaccines are coming and, you know, cures are coming, but they're not here and America doesn't seem to be uh, 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 moving in the right direction mm -hmm. like other equivalent countries in the world mm -hmm. are. So how are you? How are you doing? Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, this is, this is, this is hard, right? I, I just, you know, it's like pandemics are terrible. Turns out, <laughs> um, turns out and living in a country that is just okay with mass death is gutting mm. like emotionally and, and spiritually. Like I'm not, I'm not a spiritual person, but like, I definitely recognize that people like human, human lives have value and just the wash wash your hands and walk away attitude of of the administration and and different government organizations is morally appalling <laughs> you know like none of this had to happen nope none of it and that's that's really rough so yeah being being in the interest of being super honest i literally gave myself a stress rash last week which i didn't know was a thing until i googled it um so my body is not really not really feeling yeah. this whole situation um yeah i've been i've been trying to be really intentional about taking care of my body and my nervous yeah. system um yeah. because yeah it's it's been brutal it's been really really brutal like today i'm doing okay honestly um Yesterday, I thought I was gonna have like a break. <laughs> like I really, I really did. I was, I was just, I was like triggered all day long, right? Like crying in between every single one of my Zoom meetings. Um, it's so this is just real life for me, right? I'm, I'm like, on top of being a big fan of crying, I'm a big fan about being honest about where you are emotionally, yeah. like with yourself yeah. for starters. Yeah. But then, you know trying to set an example and be honest about my, my lived experience in my body. Right. Um, yeah. so yeah, and I mean, it's, it's a lot. I'm hanging in. I don't feel like, you know, I don't feel like I'm on the edge necessarily, yeah. but there are definitely days that are really, really fucking hard. So, yeah. And in the midst of all this, it, it, it would be rough enough if it was this pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. 40 million unemployed. Mm -hmm. um, again, we, we live in a country that doesn't seem to be take not doesn't seem to be, that's a lie, did not take this seriously. And in many ways, is still not taking it seriously. I mean, Florida is this kind of super hotbed of coronavirus cases right now for a thousand reasons we won't get into right now. But, you know, just on Sunday, uh, Mike Pence said, People can get, he said it again, people can get tests. Anybody that wants to test right now can get it. And, and then they showed at the stadium in, um, in, uh, not Pensacola in, uh, uh, Jack, I don't know, somewhere like there's lot, like they were already at capacity for the full day by 8 AM. So all the people that got in line after that could not get a, it could not get a test. And so we've got, we are, and we can see, we can see, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not claiming to know how we could have done this better. Right. I have inklings and we have some data right. and science that we can work through. Like I'm not a, I'm not an, a virologist. I'm not an immunologist. I have friends that are, and one of my friends, Jake Glanville and Sarah Ives in, in San Francisco, they found a cure for the coronavirus. They're testing it right now. So it's like cool to be able to talk with them and hear like 
they found a cure. Like by this could be tested on humans by the fall and it could mm. be out and about for everybody to use. Mm -hmm. So it's really cool. But that's not me. That's right. not my but yeah. but you can but I'm just looking at pure numbers. I'm looking at uh Hong Kong, you know, uh seven, you know, seven point five million people, six coronavirus related deaths, uh, with a ninety-seven percent mask adoption rate. So like you look at you look at that and you're like, wait, that's New York City. That's the, mm -hmm. that's other cities. Like we could have done that, right? Like what's different about them and us? They had six deaths in 7.5 million people. Yeah. It's it's just wild how unseriously. I mean, you go on Twitter and every other person's screaming, I can't breathe well with a mask on. And it's like, I, I don't understand why it's it, 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 Americans simultaneously talk this big game about how America is the greatest country on earth and we do this and we do that and we're amazing. And then we, on the, like five seconds later, we're bitching about wearing a mask. I wear a mask every time I go out. It's not that hard to breathe. It is a little bit, yeah. obviously. Yeah. You have some cloth in there. Me not killing my neighbor and them not killing me is totally worth having to breathe a little bit harder. And you, you, know, you saw this one woman in the store yesterday, I think it was at Trader Joe's, uh, in California, she's screaming, my doctor told me I don't have to wear one. And I'm like, lady, your yelling mm -hmm. is taking up way more breath. If you can't breathe really well, you shouldn't be shouting like that <laughs> at these employees for trying to you yeah. know, enforce their own, yeah. their own mask thing. So it's, so all that to say like, but it's not just a pandemic. Then we have, we found out two months late that Ahmad Armory was, you know, hunted down like an animal mm -hmm. and murdered for going on a run. We found out, you know, um, uh, at the time uh, when we found out two months late that uh, Breonna Taylor's killers are still loose. Yep. We saw in real time George Floyd being publicly lynched by, mm -hmm. you know, uh, several cops, one that actually did it, several that were complicit. Mm -hmm. And that one hit me hard because that was actually my old neighborhood in Minneapolis mm -hmm. before Pacific Northwest. We lived in Minneapolis in Phillips neighborhood. That that intersection uh, of Chicago and 38th, like that was, that was my neighborhood. Mm. I know that target, that target that got looted, that was my target. Yeah. So that one was really hard. Cause it's like, I've walked by where he was looted. So it's not just pandemic. It's like, now we've got this, this like, not that we didn't, we already knew it before. We already knew that, that, you know, many, I don't know if it's many or most, uh, I'll get in trouble if I say most, who cares? It's most, you know, most cops, you know, abuse their authority. They abuse you know, the, the authority they've been given. So we're, but now we're seeing it in kind of this real time, this big display of it. It's happening over and over again. And then when you think they'd be on their best behavior, you know, they go and shoot Rayshard Brooks in the back, uh, for sleeping in a parking lot. Mm -hmm. Like all of that happened mm -hmm. right during this time. So yeah. that adds to the heaviness of what's going on. How did, how are you doing with all that? And was, tell us about the, tell me about the kind of birth of white homework and how much more important it is during these uh, these times, right? Mm. Where where it seems like white people are way more open than ever. Not all. Mm -hmm. I would I I would I, I in a hopeful way I want to say the majority of white people are open, receptive to change, right. like real change. Yeah. They might not achieve it, and it's hard work. And you'll you'll explain more about that. But like it's hard work. Mm -hmm. But but it seems like people are more open to the change right now. So talk to us about white homework. Yeah. Which I think, which I think is a wonderful title. It's a wonderful idea. And it it in the right kind of way, it pokes, it pokes the bear that is mm -hmm. um, you know, uh white supremacy and white fragility and white privilege. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, um, let's see, I guess it was last, last year, a little, little over a year ago, probably. Um, I was talking to one of my, uh, Twitter buddies, Gretchen, and she said, she sent me a message and she's like, I want to run something past you. I was like, okay, cool. She's like, okay, so I've been in recovery for several decades at this point. And, um, I feel like, and, and she also, she, you know, she has a STEM degree as well. Right. So she's, she's kind of looking at data and she's like, I feel like not in neuroscience, but she's like, I feel like the way that people respond to being told that they have white privilege is very similar to the way that I responded when people talk to me about alcohol and that kind of knee jerk defensiveness of like, I don't have a problem. Right. Other people have a problem, but it's not me. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was so struck by that, that it's like the same kind of the people, people get addicted to their privilege. Right. And so, um, a few, a few weeks after that conversation that we had, um, I, so at some point it was like, oh, okay. So I've been thinking about like this project, this idea, like what would it look like to do, um, anti-racism training for people, um, for people who are interested. And, um, so yeah, the name, the name white homework kind of struck me because I think that it, it sort of cuts both ways, right? Like, so it automatically excludes the people who are like, I'm not white, I'm a person. (laughs) And it automatically excludes the people who are like, I'm white, but I'm not going to do the work. Um, Mm. and so for me, it was like, okay, I can use this title. and really like, get super specific on like who is going to be interested in this yeah. work. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I kind of threw together like a little Patreon page and, um, started working on lessons, right. Like just little individual white homework modules that people can download and just do on their own. Um, part like this, came after several years of white people asking me, okay, but what can I personally do about racism? And that's like an hour, 90 minute conversation. If I don't know you from, from Easy. anyone, Easy. right. Cause it's like you and you, you're right. You have to be willing to like answer the questions that I have for you, honestly, <laughs> like, um, because you know, I don't know how much access you have. I don't know how much privilege you have. I don't know what kind of connections you have. I don't know what kind of resources you have. I don't know what kind of abilities you have or how much energy you have. Like you have to figure all that out on your own before I can tell you like what you specifically are supposed to do, right? Because it's really unjust. And I think that within the context of white supremacy, I've been bringing this up a lot lately. There is very much like this one size fits all model, right? Like you go into the machine and you come out and if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll be successful right? And it's like mm-hmm. this one specific route and everybody's supposed to take it. And it doesn't matter again, like what resources you have. It doesn't matter what your ability level is. It doesn't matter if you have chronic health issues, like, nope, everybody's got to go and do this one thing. And it's like, no, like the world that we need to build is the opposite of this, right? We are individuals who also need to work for the collective good. And the collective good is not served by putting everybody into the same mold. And so, um, I, I had to basically, I created a curriculum where people go and do their own work, right? About their own neighborhood, about their own county, about their own state, um, about the land that they live on. And um, being able to take that and figure out like, okay, what resources do I have? 
who do I know that has more privilege and power than I do, but I have access to them. I have their ear, right? And going and sitting down and having conversations with those people, like ongoing conversations where you are documenting like what you talk to them about and what their reaction was and like where you think you can make an in with, mm. with them. Um, because again, like ultimately white homework, it's not, it's not for white people in the sense that like, I, I don't work for white people. I work to make life better for people with less privilege than I have. Um, yeah. Yeah. so, you know, if, if a white person doesn't want to do the work, like that's fine. I'm not going to have a conversation with you about why this is important. I'm not going to have a conversation with you about why I chose the name white homework. Like I'm not going to have a conversation to you about why people of color's lives matter. I'm not going to have a conversation with you about like, why you can't just deny trans people human rights. Like this is, these are not conversations I'm going to have personally. Like you could talk to people about that, but like, that's like, I'm past that. So, um, I, I, you know, I, it's like, while it's called white homework and it is mainly kind of geared towards white people again, like I had to do my own homework about like yep, whose sure. land I lived on. Right. I had to do my own homework about like what the policies were in, in my state. Right. Oregon has worse racial disparities in, in sentencing and in prison sentences than Louisiana. Insane. That was something I had to find out on my own. Right. And we have like 2% of Oregon is black and we have bigger racial disparities here than in the south so um again like that kind of circles back to this idea of like oh yeah we're progressive like mm, maybe like the cover yeah, of the book so looks much. progressive but once you get inside yeah. it's like nah not so much um so that's kind of how white homework came to be was that i like for me it was kind of efficiency right like white people wanted to have all these conversations with me and i'm like i don't have the time i don't have the resources <laughs> um i don't have the emotional energy to sit and hold hands with you stranger who i don't know who i have no idea if like you know the fact that you want to take up an hour and 90 minutes of my time tells me you're probably not very serious about this from the jump right if you don't think that my time is worth anything then like yeah you already have a lot of stuff to learn that i'm not going to teach you um so yeah for in a way it was like okay let's just streamline this like let's make this let's make this a thing that people can just go do on their own time again like within you know within the amount of privilege and margin that you as an individual have in your own life um and not trying to make it this one size fits all like everybody needs to do these things because that's not how that's not how human beings work or function. And I think it's really no. kind of unfair to replicate these Western supremacist models in anti-racism. Like that doesn't work. You're, you're, you'd be doing a disservice to every person that would buy this course from you if the course was set up very uh, prescriptional mm -hmm. and very like, this is all, here's all you gotta do. Yeah. Here are the 10 steps and all that. Yeah. Because as you've already pointed out, no two people are alike. So, you know, during this time, if you didn't, if you didn't have white homework set up, right, as a, as a, mm -hmm. as a teaching tool, you'd get so many more people coming to you and saying, you know, what, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? They're like, I'm, I'm ready to do something. Yeah. And, and it's like, well, unless you guys are besties, it, it, it would be, uh, again, it would take hours and days and weeks for you to know them well enough to say, here's what you need to do specifically. Yeah. And that person is looking for a shortcut if they are going to someone they don't know to ask for really built out lists of here are the things you do. Mm -hmm. I mean, the truth of the matter is there are so many resources. There's so much out there already. Like one of the first things I did, like I'm not, I am, I'm the son of an immigrant. I have, I don't believe that I have 
you know, faced near nearly the discrimination that, you know, black people and other brown people have faced. But I've been the butt of many jokes and I've been the object of much discrimination in my life. Mm-hmm. But having said that, like, I, I think what I've been telling all of my white friends is like, don't, like, I started back in March, like, do not go ask your black friends for how to fix this, for how yeah. to do this. Uh-huh. There are thousands, I mean, thousands yes. of books yep. and podcasts yep. and lectures and papers and like, you name it, yep. they're out there. Mm-hmm. The problem is people, they want that built out list of instructions. Be- it's laziness. Mm-hmm. It's laziness. Uh, on top of willful ignorance, but it's laziness that they don't want to do. They want to watch four hours of Netflix every night. They want to do all, they want life to go on as if it were normal, instead of saying, no, I'm going to commit two, three hours every day for the foreseeable future, learning very in depth how we got here Mm -hmm. and then try to figure out what we can do. Because if they just try to figure out right now um, where to go and how to do it, it's gonna be it's gonna be executed poorly, and they'll be back at square one in no time at all because there was no foundation. Yeah, they don't they don't fundamentally understand. I mean, Tori, I have talked with. Really, I'll be honest, and maybe it's been your experience as well. The only real pushback that I've gotten in the last few weeks has been from ninety eight percent white men, not white, not even white women. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen such a receptivity to yeah. learn and to humbly approach it. I have had countless white men uh, come to me with statements like systemic racism does not exist. Everyone is equal under the law. Uh, redlining was ab- abolished this long ago. Uh, gentrification doesn't really do this. The, the preschool to prison pipeline does not exist. The uh, food deserts, that's not a real thing. Like all of these mm. incredibly crazy uninformed statements, they've mm-hmm. been all from white dudes. And it's been, it's been very frustrating because I'm like, you do not, uh, you don't want to do the homework. Right. You don't want to go back and do the homework. And if you have in a lot of them, I have one guy in particular that he's, he's, uh, a good friend. I love him. But he has, he has a really, he's a historian, like he knows history, but his history, the, the version of history that he has spent hundreds and hundreds, thousands of hours learning, you know, has led him to believe that the Confederate flag is not a symbol of racism. Mm -hmm. The Confederate flag is not something that we should abolish and do away with. It was a five year fucking thing that happened in our country. Why are we still living and abiding by it? He still believe he's, so it's led him to believe that. So I guess it's not just to learn history, but it's to learn the right history. It's Mm -hmm. to go to the right teachers, Mm -hmm. it's to go to the right sources. Um, And so I, I, I love the way that you've set this up where it's like guidelines, right? There's like riverbanks, you set up the Mm riverbanks. And then you're like, okay, you've got to do the flowing now. You've got to go do, because I can't tell you how this is going to look for you. You live in, you know, Paducah, Kentucky or Dallas, Texas or New York City or, or you know, somewhere in Iowa. Like, it's going to look different for every one of those places yeah. how you're going to become an anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, I, yeah, I think that, that I think that that's absolutely like an excellent point that right, like you can learn so much history. And still, if you aren't, you know, if you are not listening to, I guess, like what we would call marginalized voices, right? Then you're not getting a complete picture of like what what has happened in this country. Um, If you are, you're learning the predominant cultural narrative, um, 
then you are not, you're not hearing indigenous voices, right? You're not hearing Latinx voices. You're not hearing black voices. You're not hearing Asian American voices. Like all of these things exist and are here and it is still an option, especially within academia to ignore all of that. Right. And you just put on your like white glasses and that's what you, that's what you see. That's what you learn. That's the history. And again, like when you're in, when you're functioning in this like Western supremacist model, um, that is absolutely a legitimate way to operate, right? To just exclude the narratives that don't serve your purpose. And um, I mean, for me, it's really important to push back against that. And um, right, you know, for, for me, what really comes down to is like, okay, who's, who's the most marginalized voice? Um, speaking on this subject, like that's the person whose, whose final call it is. Right. Yeah. Because, um, well, <laughs> to quote the, the late Louis CK, uh, if someone tells you you hurt them, you do not get to decide that you didn't, that's not your call. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so if black Americans are saying that the Confederate flag is harmful, guess what, fuckers? You don't get to decide it's not. That's not your call. Yeah. Um, yes, 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 a thousand times so, yes. You know, and, 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 you know, and it, it's still, like, this applies to me, right, as a cis woman. Like, if a transgender person tells me, like, hey, what you said or did or wrote was hurtful, like, I have to go and make that right. Because I don't get to tell them, oh, no, it's not hurtful, right? Because this is the path that leads to dehumanization, right? This is the path that leads to policies with that end up with kids in cages unable to get healthcare or see their fucking parents. Um, we don't, once you go down this path of your experience is irrelevant because it doesn't, it doesn't suit my needs. It doesn't fit my narrative. It doesn't help me maintain power or, or grasp power. Then you're really, you're on a very historically dangerous trajectory um, mm-hmm. in terms of, in terms of like cost of, human life right and human suffering and i mean again like we live in a country where the entire foundation of of like the empire that that became that america became uh was dehumanization right it was white people saying i get to decide if you're suffering and you're not suffering so i'm going to take all your labor from you um it was white people saying I get to decide if you're suffering and you're not suffering if I take all your land from you. Um, and it was white people constantly excluding the voices that didn't serve mm-hmm. their purposes, the voices that didn't help them accumulate power. Um, and so when I'm, when I'm doing, when I'm creating white homework and I, again, like I'm always learning, like I, like I said, I fuck up too, but um, I'm trying to create a model that is inclusive that's accessible for people um and not relying on not relying on shame right or guilt to get like because i think that like white people know what's right i think that's really like what a lot of this comes down to for me is it's like you know racism is wrong right you know actually deep down inside i swear that you know that you don't get to tell someone who's hurting that they're not hurting because that's not your experience um you know, you're not like the final authority or arbiter or say in, in our lives, in our experiences. And I think when we're in, in, in the process of trying to create like, um, a society that, 
uplifts everyone and doesn't let people like slide through the cracks. Um, it is, it's really important to move away from kind of this, again, one size fits all, like you just do X, Y, and Z and, and you'll be successful, which like, even that, like, that's, that's not, that's not true. Like look at history, right. like that is inaccurate. <laughs> um, but yeah, there is, there's so much that's left unsaid and it requires yeah. intentionality to go and to find, to find those voices that have intentionally been excluded. Um, and not, not intentionally excluded because they were trying to support harm. I think that this is, you know, becomes like this academic exercise, right? Especially like, as you said, for white men where it's like, oh, let's, let's debate whether or not trans people have human rights. It's like, no, let's not. Like that's, we're not going to have that discussion like that. You know, if you turn it around, it's like, let's debate whether white men have like cis white men, do they have human rights? Let's just have a discussion because we're going to, you know, we're going to talk about it. Right. It's yeah. just a thought experiment. Yep. We're not, we're not doing anything with this. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't go for that. So why do you get to no. do that to other people? Right. And again, it's like kind of this, when you're talking about this, like sort of academic history of the United States, it's this path that so frequently leads to to dehumanization, to suffering, to harm. That is completely unnecessary. And and we're seeing that play out in so many different ways in our country right now. And you know, exactly as you said, like Trump is just a symptom. He's not the cause. Yeah. Like this is that we live in the house that we built on the foundation of human suffering and and yep. and theft, right? Like theft of land and theft of life and labor. And so <laughs> Unfortunately, like we all have to deal with the consequences of this. And so we yep. are willing to build a new house. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's all like really, really helpful. I've, I've been, I think one of my tasks the last couple months has been just kind of subtly and then sometimes not so subtly reminding people how not great America is, you know, because I, I think people lose their way when they're, when they're convinced by you know the president or someone else or something else that we are this amazing country that we need to get back to this and we need to get back to that and that'll make us even greater. I think we all need, if we're gonna stay here and if we're gonna invest our time and our talent and our energy and our careers and our lives into this country, we need to be very aware that we are not that great. And everything that we think, everything we deem great, you know, we talk about our riches, our wealth, all the things that we've created. We have to, if we're going to recognize all this money that we've made and all these things that we've contributed to the world, we have to recognize where the, the enormous ways we've failed people of color, marginalized peoples, indigenous peoples all along the way through that process. Mm -hmm. Like no one, no one made a billion dollars without fucking over a lot of other people in the process. Yeah. You can't make a million, you can't make a billion dollars and, and, and do it in an ethical, everybody got paid, everybody was compensated, everybody's treated right throughout the whole process. It, or, or maybe everybody was treated well, and it, but now you, that means you're charging too much for whatever you're making, right? So that that's not, that's unjust, that's unhelpful. We're seeing $3,000 uh, coronavirus uh, uh, cures that are being talked about, or is it the cure or is it the vaccine? That, that, uh, that thing that was, I forget what it is, but, but, it, but they pointed out that it costs $10 to make this it costs $10 to make. And they're toying around with a 2,500 to $3,000 after your insurance. That's not, that's not before insurance. That's after insurance. You'll have to pay 30, uh, like $3,000 for this. And it costs $10. Like 
That is not, we are not great because of all of those things. Mm-hmm. Once we, and that's not a bad thing to realize that we're not all right. that great. Let's, right. let's, let's realize that and then say we can become great. Mm-hmm. And what greatness looks like mm-hmm. is not just equality, but equity. Let's yep. go a step further. Not just equality, but equity for all peoples. Uh, you know, if, uh, hu- human rights for all peoples. Right. Uh, all of these things. That's what makes us great. Like look at other countries with that are that that are way happier than we are. So many of them are not these high GDP, you mm-hmm. know, countries mm-hmm. that have contributed all this stuff to the world. So what really matters at the end of the day that you that you that you have all these invention these things that you've created or you have the top companies in the world uh, housed here in the US or is it that everybody feels heard, cared for, uh, compensated appropriately, so on and so forth. So uh, that that's always a good place to start is like you know, I retweet a lot of things these days, and my only caption is "America is not great." Mm-hmm. America is not great. Mm-hmm. America is not great. We can be great, but we're not great. We've never been great. Yeah. We we started off raping and pillaging and murdering people to take what wasn't ours. What's great in that? <laughs> That's not great. Yeah, yeah. I think in the, you bring up like such a uh, such a perfect point because we really have to talk about like the language that we use. Like, how are we def- right? How are we defining? greatness. If we're defining greatness by like the accumulation of power, like, yeah, America, America's pretty great. Right. If we rule at that, right. If we're defining greatness by the accumulation of resources and commodities, well, I mean, yeah, if that's how you're defining greatness then sure. But like, what, what was the human cost there? Yep. What was the human cost to get to that point? We're in the top five of infant mortality. We're in the we're in like 40th in education. We're we're, we're like all of our statistics are topsy turvy. Like yeah. we're we're top in the, a lot of the bad ones, and we're bottom of the barrel in 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 terms of like kind of you know modern countries. Mm-hmm. Like so so again, what are we? Yeah, what are we measuring? What yeah. are we gauging this by? Yeah, because if if America is for the people, uh, then we're doing a really shitty job mm-hmm. being great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, absolutely. We got kids in we got kids in cages. We can't figure immigration out. Uh, our, our our president has you know demonized anyone that doesn't uh, agree with him, and he's turned millions of Americans against you know the very much needed uh, media and journalism. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. like we, we have we are not a people centered a people centric society. Yeah. We are very much a driven by the dollar, mm-hmm. whatever the dollar gets us. Mm-hmm. Oh, this, this medicine costs $10 to make. We're going to charge 3000 for it. Yeah. You know, I, I just went to, I, I had to get a, I had this very bad, uh, allergic reaction the other day. And, um, so my doctor put in, he put in a, a prescription for two, like EpiPens mm-hmm. for me just to have them in case. And so my insurance is good, thankfully. And I paid a dollar fifty for that for that dollar fifty or two dollars for the EpiPen, mm. but those things are like six hundred bucks a piece. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. if you don't have insurance, you're paying for you know six hundred dollars for this life saving device to stick in your back in case you end up needing it. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just I'm just rambling at this point, but the point is like we have to for white homework and for let's give a damn and for all of these conversations we have to start especially i mean i have people that's in this podcast in 60 countries but most of them are here in north america mm-hmm. if we're going to start we've got to start with america is not great she's never been great we can be great yep. now let's do the white homework yeah. let's do the homework and figure out how we can get there you know in the next decade or two so that our kids uh, can raise families 
in in a country that truly they can see equity everywhere they look. Yeah. They can see it, you know? Yeah. Um, you 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 said at the beginning, you know, that you grew up in an evangelical home. And then 20 minutes later, you said you're not spiritual. So talk to me about uh, and I'm not, I don't need, I mean, go as deep as you want to, but I don't need you to get, into, I'm, I'm sure uh, my guess is there's some pain and there's some hurt there, right? As so many people that grew up in, and you even said, which I grew up in that same world. Mm. You said, you said we were, we were way further right than evangelical, right? Which is insane. But I, I too grew up in a very fundamentalist, um, really, 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 really strict, crazy conservative upbringing. And I am still healing from some of the things that I grew up in. So, um, you know, I saw this tweet that re that reminded me to one of these a tweet from you the other day that reminded me to kind of check in with this if you're willing to share because you said I just realized we call it white supremacy and they call they call it the will of God for America, and then you you kept on saying you kept going saying I just mean to say they believe America's race gender hierarchy is on some level varies by denomination ordained by God. They believe God blessed their ancestors' land theft, genocide, and slavery for the good of the many. Them, obviously, not all mm -hmm. of them, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I'd love for you to talk about that tweet, but first, because uh, I agree with all of it, every single, from the I all the way to the them uh, <laughs> and, and everything in between. But um, yeah, what was your what was your journey away from all that? Maybe you never were in it. You just kind of grew up in it and you never felt that home. But like, yeah, what was your journey there and away from it? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I grew up, I was kind of born on the pew, as people like to say. Yep. And I, I, mean, I was definitely in it because I was in until, I mean, I was an evangelical until I was 30 years old. So, um, and what ultimately led to me leaving, you know, I'd been wrestling with like on a daily basis, right? Kind of trying to figure out like, how am I supposed to square, you know, human rights? And just the fact that I care for people, like I care for my neighbors with this, like anti-trans, anti-gay um, theology that I'm being told I have to have if I want to go to heaven, right? So I, I'd been wrestling with that for a long, long time. But um, the catalyzing moment for me was when Michael Brown was lynched and just the response of white Christians to the murder of a child. Um, sorry, I work in neuroscience. Like brain development isn't complete until you're 25. So go fuck yep. yourself. Like yeah. he was a kid. Yeah. And um, just the way that I saw white evangelicals cheering for the law, for the destruction of human life over allegedly a pack of cigarettes, maybe. Um, that was really, you know, for me, it was, it was the struggle of like, if, if God, if God is good, right. And, and which I've, I've been taught that like, God is good. God is love. Like, and you know, you just have to accept him into your heart or whatever, you know, whatever your mm. theology happens to be. And that, that's, that's all you have to do. Right. But I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm struggling with the fact that like, I'm, I'm looking at my my two-year-old baby on the floor and going, okay, so God is good and loving. And if I were to be like God, anytime my two-year-old screws up, I would pull out a fucking blowtorch, right? Because you don't get any, there's no margin for error. You know, if you fuck sure. this up, you were going to hell forever. And I was kind of, well, okay. 
So I'm seeing all these super shitty evangelicals, like white evangelicals, be specific. And I'm struggling with the fact that like, if God were my next door neighbor, I would be calling CPS on his ass. And like, this is just, is not working for me anymore. <laughs> and I completely understand that there are many other ways to view, sure. many other lenses through which to view the scriptures, right? Many lenses yeah. through which to view any ancient holy texts. Like, and I, I completely understand that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't consider myself to be a spiritual person. Um, I absolutely consider myself to like have spiritual practices, I suppose. Um, I don't really know what the word spiritual even means. Um, sure. I just yeah, don't. Right. That's a baggage laden <laughs> term. Right? I just don't. Um, I still, I still experience awe. Right. And, and mm. that is really important for me. It's a really, it's really powerful for me. And I, you know, I don't discount that. And I don't think that, um, human lives hold any less value if there isn't some all-powerful creator out there somewhere um you know i i would i would argue that i that i value other human beings more now that i've like left uh religion and yeah i mean i still you know it's also it's not something that i wonder about you know, like my, uh, so I have four younger siblings and, um, three of us are atheists and one is a non-practicing Christian. So there's only one practicing Christian left out of, out of the five. And, you know, so I, talking to my siblings who are atheists, it's really kind of interesting because I'm like, even, even if like God is real and heaven is a real place, like, I don't want to go there. <laughs> so it's, you know, to me, I'm like, if you, and this is something, this is, this is a way that I challenge white people too. Like I'm just holding God to the sta same standard that I hold white Americans to. If you have power to do good and to prevent suffering and you choose not to, please go fuck yourself. Um, so again, I understand that this is not the only way to view God, right? Or yeah, to view sure. spirituality. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, Many of my closest friends are believers, like somewhere on that spectrum of belief. Um, and we get along beautifully because we have the same values, right? Like we value human dignity and mm -hmm. autonomy. And we think people's lives are more important than capital or commodities. Um, and we orient our lives as much as we can towards the concept of justice and equity. Um, so ultimately like your beliefs don't make you a good or a bad person. Um, and, and I, since, you know, I sincerely believe that, that like they're horrifically shitty Nazi atheists out there. Can't do anything about that. Right. Like, there's yeah. going to be, there's shitty people on all sides to paraphrase <laughs> a very yep. common quote. Um, so for me, it's like, I just kind of naturally fell into this, into this place of, and I, and, you know, I'm able to recognize that there's, yeah, there's like some pain there. There's some, some of it is a little bit reactionary. Um, and also like, I feel, I feel really good about the fact that, you know, I can have like a consistent moral ethic now. Right. Like I don't have to look to the Bible or some like 
holy text to try to like parse out something that makes sense to me. I can just say like harm reduction, right? Listen to people who have been silenced by those in power. Like this is, these are very simple ways for me to orient my reality that don't require me sitting and like struggling with, well, you know, what, what was this person who was alive 4,000 years ago thinking when they wrote this, this thing that was not in my language that was, were separated by time and space and many continents and oceans and like, how am I supposed to make sense of this, right? Like, I don't, I don't have to deal with that. Like, if that's something that someone wants to engage in, like, by all means, you know, we can, we can absolutely, um, like, remain in relationship if you want yeah. to use those terms, like we can still yeah. be friends. We can still be colleagues. We can still work together um, and live alongside one another. Um, because to me, like the, the religious or like spiritual aspect isn't um, that doesn't define people for me. Like I'm very, I'm very curious about like your morality, right? If you are, if you're invested in growth, if you're invested in becoming a better person, if you're invested in being called in, right um and and engaging in um like just kind of critical self-awareness and learning from people whose life experiences don't line up with your personal beliefs or ideology um i mean one thing that i come back to frequently and i I tweet this all the goddamn time so i'm like i understand like i live in portland like my you know some of my neighbors are are proud boys and alt-right and patriot prayer and what have you. And I want every single one of their fucking kids to have a great education and be able to go to the hospital when they need to. Yeah, like, sure. Without exception. Like I want none yep. of them to worry about paying for groceries and keeping the lights on ever. Yeah. Because to me, like, it, it, like, and I don't care that they hate me, right? Like I don't care that they want me to die or, or just to like leave the country. Um, I'm, you know, when I am doing my work, even though like it is mainly directed at white people, it's to create a better world for like my neighbor's kids too, right? Like my kids are not more important than my neighbor's kids. And I think that that is something that American Christians get really wrong a lot of the time, white American Christians more specifically, um, is, is this idea of like the, you know, individual exceptionalism and, and like, we're all just sort of in it for ourselves. Um, mm. So these are a lot of the reasons that for me, like even when I left evangelicalism, it wasn't super worth it to invest time in like creating a new sort of spiritual ex- or religious experience. Um, because I don't think for me personally, like I don't need that <laughs> in order to be a, a, like a moral person in order to be someone who's humble and willing to accept correction, right. From people, if I've, if I've harmed them, um, but yeah, I think that that lens of like, they view, they view like the racial, like going back to the tweet, like they view the racial gender hierarchy as like, this was God ordained, right? Mm-hmm. So when you, when we, who are doing anti-racist work, when we are fighting against oppression and marginalization and silencing and dehumanization, like we're actually fighting in their eyes, we're fighting the will of God, fighting against the will of God. Yeah. And so, you know, when I try to, when I engage on Twitter, because it's such a, like, it's such a small sort of, like you have 280 characters, um, you don't have a ton of space. And so I try to really engage with people who disagree with me using their own language, right? Using their own words, because I don't think that it is, I don't think it's fair to like put words in other people's mouths um, or to, to kind of 
to use my language to define like their experiences. Um, and so I just try to like be a translator <laughs> a lot of the yeah. time, which is yeah. where the whole like, okay, we're fighting against white supremacy and, and we're fighting against dehumanization. And because they believe that America's legacy, like America's history, that God blessed America, um, despite all of the horrific sins America inflicted on people, um, that they're really like ultimately saying that like we're fighting against the will of God for this country. And well, I yeah. Cause if, if, if what, what so many of them are doing is they're looking at specifically, and I know I'm, I'm going to make it way easier. I'm, I'm going to dumb it down. And there's so many nuances and so many things to talk through, you know, that theologians have been talking about for, you know, thousands of years, mm -hmm. but so many of them are just simply looking at the Old Testament where God said, we need to get here, mm -hmm. we need to go there, mm -hmm. and to get here and go there, these people that don't follow me are in our way, yeah. so we need to get them out. Mm -hmm. So kill them, destroy them, cities, whole nations, whole peoples, they're gone, right? Yeah. And so there, you know, so many white Christians are okay with the raping, the pillaging, and the stealing that's happened today, because they're thinking, well, this is just the price of freedom. This is the price of getting where we need to go, right? Yeah. Don't, they wouldn't. They might not come out and say that. They're not going to say that on camera right. and like swear by it. Right. But that's really what it comes down to. Is they're okay? They think you know the price of so many people will still stand behind the Iraq War mm. that mm -hmm. that took you know that snuffed out hundreds of thousands of lives. It was a complete sham and a waste of a war. And they would say, nope, that was a good move because we, you know, we helped them and we did this and we, that's mm -hmm. the price of freedom. I'm like, mm -hmm. no, you don't actually like, how, how do you believe that to get freedom, to get equity, to get, you know, all of these things that actually make for human flourishing, mm -hmm. we have to kill other people to get there. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's, that it's astounding. Does, that does not, that cannot make sense that we have to hurt other people so that we can be free. Yeah. Like there, there has to be a better way. Yeah. Religious or not, there has to be a better way of achieving that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and unfortunately so many, uh, Christians in this country and all over the world believe that to get the freedom that we're all looking to get, we have to hurt a bunch of people in the process. Yeah. And that's to put it very lightly, unfortunate. Um, <laughs> Uh -huh. Let's start, let's start, there's, let's start wrapping up. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, but for the sake of time today, maybe we'll do it another time. We'll do a uh, round two some other time, okay. but I have this, I have this, this question might not go how I want it to go, but I'm just kind of thinking in my head as you've been talking about all the things you've been talking about. So hypothetical scenario, um, secret service pulls up in front of your house. Donald Trump gets out of the car and he comes up to you and says, Tori, I'm not good at my job. I can't do this anymore. You're in charge now. Like you get to lead us out of this thing. I'm utterly failing, which he is. I'm utterly incompetent, which he is. And I just can't do it anymore. So it's up to you now. It's up to you. We're in the middle of a pandemic, uh, uh, police brutality. We've got all of these crazy things going mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. What would you, what would be the first few things that you would do, right? Because you're studying people, you're engaging with a lot of white people, which white people make up the, not for long, but they make mm -hmm. up the majority of this country right now. Yeah. Um, 
and and you're kind of you're kind of seeing uh, I I think objectively kind of what's going on here. What what are some of the like I, again? I'm not giving you time to think through with your your new team of advisors and all that. But like, what are the what are some of like the first few things you would do to kind of say if we can if we can manage to move closer to X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. we'll be on the right track. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, just to clarify, are we talking about like within the constraints of like the presidency as it currently exists? Like this is my agenda. Oh. Good question that I did not think about. Um, that I have to get through Congress because yeah, you know a, you know I'll fight for you know show. you know that I'll yeah. fight for shit for, if that I believe in regardless yeah. of whether or not it has any chance of passing. Let's say no, yeah. Let's say for the sake of this scenario, which I did not think through until just now when I decided to ask <laughs> you. Let's say there's no there's no constraints. You get to okay. you get to kind of move forward and say, hey, I've been observing people and cultures and societies, and I I realize I live on stolen land. I realize the privilege that I have. I realize all of these things. Yes, yes. Based on that, what would you move forward doing? There's no constraints. People are at your beck and call. They're at your they're at your command. Okay, so the first thing that I would do, um. Let's see. So the first thing that I would do would be to, and this is, this is something that I have publicly called for, right? So you can at me, I have receipts. You can at Um, me. That's right. (laughs) I would add, so I would add some temporary um, congressional and Senate seats. Um, I would look at each state and find out how long, like, excluding years of reconstruction, how long those states excluded um, people of color from from voting and running for office functionally, right? Not the law, but functionally how long people were excluded. There's the difference. I'm going to, I'm going to take those, that number of years. So I think for, let's see, I think Mississippi became a state in like 1819. So between 1819 and 1965, 1968, civil rights era, right? So we're talking about 160, 170 years. So for Mississippi, like however many um, congressional seats that they have, which probably isn't that many because it's a really small state, um, we're going to create, we're going to double that, right? So we're going to two more Senate seats, two more, um, two more, or however many more, four more congressional seats. Yep, however many sure. Mississippi has. Yep. And um, those extra seats can only be for, for the next 160 some odd years that we've decided, um, you know, whatever Mississippi's receipts are, we, those seats can only be filled by people of color voting for other people of color, right? I like it. So um, because we were systematically excluded, from the process of participating in democracy um, in order to give people agency over their own lives. Like I would say, you know, you can, you can run for these seats if you are non-white, Hispanic, black, indigenous, um, Asian American, Pacific Islander, or like non-white essentially. Like, and, and only those people get to vote because again, like Mississippi has a really, uh, interesting history when it comes to letting people access the ballot box, even today as they're shutting down yep, polling places, today. right? Yep, um, yep, yep. Shutting down polling places in black neighborhoods. Did I mention that? Um, yeah. So I would do that in every, in every state. 
right? So whatever that looks like, um, we're, we're just going to, we're going to figure it out. We're going to do the math on all of that. So you're going to have like a lot more temporarily and, you know, again, these, these things are going to phase out over time. Um, temporarily, we're going to have a lot more representation, representation right? And, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to double the size of the Senate, right? Like, and sure, since we're, since we're doing this, like, let's make DC a state and give Puerto Rico back to Puerto Ricans because they don't want us. Um, <laughs> and let's see here. So I would do that. And then I would tell Congress um, to come up with, to work with indigenous, like tribal nations, to come up with a path to return land over time, right? That doesn't cause displacement that's not creating like refugees of anyone um you know because there comes a point where if you're displacing someone who's lived somewhere for their whole life like that's all they know and we don't need to create another refugee crisis but how can we ethically over time start returning land um i don't want to say like that we don't need but there is there would be processes for people to you know it's not like oh white people have to leave right but that we we're turning over land to people who to its original caretakers and inhabitants yeah. right um and then i would uh tell congress to pass legislation abolishing the presidency <laughs> because that is bullshit and um i would probably probably want to do um probably want to set up something that's um more representative right so like maybe figure out a way to divide the country into like five separate areas and then it's like yeah those pe- i've seen those, those pe- maps right. and those are exactly yep. and those people it makes more sense those people get to move the country forward so it's like you you're each gonna get we're all gonna have like equal say we're each gonna get like a representative body and um so it's like we're gonna we're all gonna have our own like mini administrations and we're gonna like work this shit out right um not to like not, not like a like we're disbanding all of america right but that there's more um that there is more of a power balance right that there's more checks that were ostensibly put into the system but apparently are just failing left and right right now um yeah so is that three things i would do three things and then i would like get rid of my and then i'd get rid of my position and go hide in like the forest in montana somewhere Well, I like that all of I like that all of yours. I mean, this is very consistent throughout your work, um, and we'll wrap up here in a second. But it's it's reparations and it's equity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be very clear. I mean, well, in your in your social media bios, you kind of sign off with love and reparations, right? Mm-hmm. And and like that is something that still boggles me. Talking to white people in this country, where they consistently kind of the the feedback is well I didn't I'm not going to pay for the sins of the past. I I didn't do that. Like that's but you're not still on me. benefiting from the sins you're of the still past. Benefiting from it, right? So let's just you know again, I don't know if this analogy is going to work, but if if somebody spends you know if somebody's running a marathon and they spend 3 quarters of the time cheating, right, to get ahead, right? And then that's found out, right? They find the cheater on mile 22 of 26, right? Yeah. Well, they don't say Hey, are you going to do better from here on out? Like you'll fix it, right? From here on out. No, no, no. He has to go. You know, you're talking about you're this whole like rep, you don't rep, even get to run again until like for three or four years. 
Right, right. It's so severe yeah. where white people just want to like, okay, we understand we did some shitty things back then. Now we're going to move on from here. That's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. There, There is land to give back. There are reparations to be paid. And we have to do those things yeah. to like the sins of our past, the sins of our forefathers and foremothers. It doesn't go away. Mm-mm. It doesn't go away. White people are, they are reaping the benefits of the sins of the past. Yep. So you- have to put in the time and open your wallet and you know so on and so forth like we as a country and we as individuals have to do that work so i love that when put on the spot uh everything you just mentioned had something to do with yeah equity and reparations because that is so important we can't move forward until we recognize how fucked up we've been in the past and Mm -hmm. so many people want to gloss over that and say well from here on out we're going to be better (laughs) Right. That's just not how it works. It's not. That's just not it doesn't work in it's it doesn't not. work in the the criminal legal system. It doesn't work anywhere. Like, oh, I'll do better from here. I promise. I promise I'll do better. That's just not how it works. So um this has been a wonderful conversation. Again, I have so much more, but for the sake of time, let's call it here. Uh uh where can people where can people find your work? What do you want them to go look for after this? I mean, I'm sure, I mean, obviously they can just Google your, your name and white homework and all that, but yeah. send people places where they should go right now before we sign off. Okay. Um, so I am on Twitter and Instagram. My obviously white homework at white homework is like the official page for that. And then, um, my personal is at Tori glass, T O R I, um, again, both Twitter and Instagram. Um, so I decided to use my Patreon to pay rent for a family of color for a year. So if you go to whitehomework.com, you can go and sign up for the pay the rent club. And, um, that starts, what is it? That starts tomorrow, which is super fucking exciting. Um, and, uh, yeah, so you can go, you can sign up for that. This is like super easy way to do reparations and you don't even have to like you don't even have to look at it or go like fill out your card. You just put in your card information and just, you can just let it roll however long you want to do that. Um, and we have a really incredible family. It's three generations. Um, wow. and they have been really, really fighting for a long time and they deserve a break. Um, so we're just going to pay their rent for a year and they can take care of themselves. Right. Um, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. That's where you can find me. I'm around. I'm usually, usually on Twitter. So yeah, if you, and you if, engage a lot with people. So yeah. I, um, yeah, if you if friends, if you have any questions or anything, um, hit her up and, uh, maybe, maybe she will respond. I yeah. know you've got a lot of stuff coming your way, <laughs> but Tori, you've been a delight. Thank you so much for being raw, honest, open with us about, uh, life and spirituality and white homework and all of that. I hope some people head your way. And um, again, you know, thanks for all the incredible work you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. That's the show today, my friends. A massive thanks to Tori for joining me on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening. You can find all the links she referenced and I referenced and more in the show notes at letsgiveadam.com. Nick LaPara, that's me, created this show. Chad Snavely produced it. Let's Give a Damn is part of the Matter Media family, and you can reach me anytime at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'm sending so much love and peace to each one of you. Stay safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>